Hey, uh, my name is Chip. I'm not Eddie, obviously. I'm the campus pastor at uh, the Orchard in Lake City. Uh, you can probably tell I'm not Eddie. I'm a little bit shorter, a little bit rounder, right? Have a little bit more gray in my beard. Some of you just wondered, does Eddie have a beard? He doesn't, but I'm glad you're awake. Um, the, the most obvious way that you can tell I'm not Pastor Eddie is despite what Jason says, I'm the far most ha handsome of our campus pastors. So that, that's how you know it's me. Uh, hey, I'm really glad to be with you guys today, uh, kicking off this brand new series, Do It Again. We're really excited. November's always a big month for us at the Orchard. It's kind of where we take some time, talk about where we're going as a church, why we're going there. And really, this is something that we've never done before, where we have taken... All of our campus pastors, all of our bands, and we're just kind of switching them around for the month. So the, uh, I'm here with the Lake City Band this morning. By the way, didn't they do a great job? Yeah, they always do. <clears throat> Don't clap too much. It'll go to their head. Okay? But uh, I'm here. Pastor Eddie and your band are in Southridge, and uh, Pastor Jeff and the Southridge Band are in Lake City. We're going to rotate again next week, and I'll be back home on the 24th. And I'm super excited about it because I was able to stand up in front of the Lake City campus or last Sunday and say, guys, me and the band are going on tour right? Waiting my entire life to say that. So I was able to say that uh, last week. But it's also fun because really, I know it doesn't feel like it uh, all the time, but we really are one church that meets in multiple locations. Like this is all big one church. You are my church family. We are part of the same thing. And uh, really when you kind of look at the history of the orchard, it's pretty amazing how that has happened. The orchard started, as you know, if you've been to the Next Steps Lunch with Pastor Eddie, with just Pastor Eddie and uh, Miss Beth. And Pastor Eddie has been my mentor for years. I met him when he was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Perry. He pastored my wife there, and then from there they left to start this, and, and that was the orchard, Pastor Eddie and Miss Beth. And then they met at the Holiday Inn in Lake City. From there, they outgrew that and moved to the skating rink. And if you've been to that class, you've heard Pastor Eddie say that he wishes he could tell you that the reason they moved to the skating rink was because he was a genius, and he knew that that would just kind of be a great space for unchurched people to come and try out church. Really, it was the cheapest space in Lake City. That's why we went there. Um, but it's worked, and God has blessed at uh, the skating rink for us to grow well beyond that, so that what started with Pastor Eddie and Miss Beth today, on any given Sunday, you can walk into church at the Orchard, and there's around 750 people that do that. There's about 1,200 people that call the Orchard their home, and we've just been blessed to see God do some amazing things. You guys are here today because there was a group of about 30 people from Live Oak that were attending the skating rink that said, we want to do this in Live Oak. And so our first campus was started here. We started a campus in Jasper that through a series of events we were able to release as an autonomous church and give them our blessing and support. And just so you know, today they are actually meeting in a brand new permanent facility that they were given. And so they're really excited about that. They're going to be there for years to come. A week before we purchased the skating rink and the Live Oak property, a church in Lake City came to us and said, hey, we want to gift you 13 acres and, a and five buildings. And uh, we said, are you sure about that? And they said, yeah, we're sure. And, I, and we said, I, I was there, we don't compromise well. Are you sure you want this? And they said, absolutely we do. And so we had to go to God and say, God, hey, is this you saying we don't need to buy that property? You're just going to give us this? Uh, or we had to say, God, is this you giving us this along with the other? And you're just going to do more than we could ever dream or imagine. And that's exactly what happened. So now our Southridge campus is in existence. We have a brand new family church down in May. 
Deo, which is a new partnership that we've never really had before. We're open-handed. We give them everything that we have as a church. They come to meet with our staff and we work with them. They remain an autonomous church with their own autonomous uh, budget, facilities, and decisions, but they're a part of our family and they're doing really well growing there. And then this time next year, we're going to have a team on the ground planting a brand new location in Ocala. And so that's why we're here. We want to see God do it again. That's the whole point of the series is we want to see God do again what he's already done these past 13 years. Because what we believe, what I believe, is that the best years of the orchard are still in front of us and not behind us. We haven't peaked yet. There's still more to come. And we want to see God do again what he's already done. And so what each of us are doing this month is taking some time and kind of sharing from our own perspective that idea of how we want to see God do it again, specifically through starting new campuses. Because we believe that new campuses reach new people in new places. Right? You wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the Live Oak campus. You didn't want to go to the skating rink and have church with a bunch of holy rollers. Yeah, you see what I did there, right? So, hey, you're here, though, because a new campus was here. There are people at Southridge who were never coming to the skating rink, even though it was seven miles down the road. Jesus himself could have been the pastor, and they weren't coming through those doors, but that new campus reached new people. And when we go down to Ocala, Marion County, we're going to reach new people with new life for Jesus, and we're excited about that. And so we're going to spend all month long talking about that, what that looks like, and why it's important. So so for me, for my turn, I want to start by sharing with you a story that I heard from a preacher while I was in college. This was an old country preacher from North Carolina, and he had come to speak at chapel at our college. And he told a story about one day he went to go hike in the mountains of North Carolina, and he had forgotten his water. And so as he was hiking, he was getting really thirsty, hot, a little dehydrated, trying to decide if he should keep going or turn around and come back. And at that time, he came up on an old cabin. Well, at that old cabin, he saw something that turned his trip around, and it wasn't the cabin. Matter of fact, what he saw looked a lot like this. Do you know what that is? Raise your hand if you know what that is. Okay, boomers, put your hand down. Millennials, do you know what that is, right? So that is a water pump, right? That is a water pump attached to a well. That's how you get water. How do you get water? What do you have to do? False. You have to prime it then pump it. See, you guys are out of practice. You got to prime it, then pump it, right? And so what he saw was this well, and sitting next to the pump was a pitcher of water. And what he said is it was at that moment he had a decision to make. Would he use the water in the pitcher to get him a drink now and not have anything when he came back? Or would he use the water in the pitcher to prime the pump? Maybe it works. Maybe it didn't. The cabin wasn't in great shape. Would he use that water to prime the pump and have more than he would need? He had a choice to make. Now, maybe you grew up in church like I did. Maybe you didn't. But if you grew up in church, you know that sometimes you got to take preacher stories with a little grain of salt. Right? Maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't. But what if I could tell you that that was actually a real decision that a large number of people had to face in American history? Not just uh, a preacher and a pitcher of water, uh, but there was a time in American history where that decision, what to do with what you have, was a very pertinent decision. So if you don't know a lot about me, I love history, I love baseball, I love the Bible, I love Batman. That's Chip, right? So that's me. And, uh, and so there's one point in American history that's really, really pertinent to this idea. So in 1929, something pretty important happened in American history. What happened? 
Stock market crashed, right? Not crash like in 2008, but the stock market crashed, belly up, entire cities done away with. It was an American nightmare. And I know that today a lot of Americans live on the East Coast and West Coast, but back in 1929, the population density of America was very much consolidated on the Eastern Coast. And these cities did not have enough resources to support all of these people who now needed help due to the crash in the economy. And so what a lot of families did is they left the East Coast where they had lost basically everything to move out to the Midwest to start over as farmers, right? That's how people got to the Midwest. They left the coast and they moved to the Midwest. However, in 1931, something else happened. Here's what happened then. What happened then is a series of storms raged across the Midwest, taking the fertile topsoil that they had moved out to farm, blowing it away, and leaving nothing there that would grow. There was nothing to grow food in. And so that became a period in history known as the Dust Bowl. There in the Midwest where these raging dust storms would sweep across and terrorize these families, many of whom had just a couple years before already lost everything. And so there were a lot of families that had a very real choice to make. Would they take the grain that they had and use it as food to get back to the East Coast, to travel to the West Coast and start all over again? Or would they use the grain that they had and plant it one more season and see if they could get a harvest? That was a choice that a lot of people made. And a lot of people said, you know what? I can't afford to lose this. I don't have anything else. And they took it and they used it as food to make the journey back to either coast. But there were some who decided to stay. There were some who decided to take their seed and not try to preserve it, but instead they chose to plant it, and they planted it in 1939, the rains came again. And so today, in the Midwest, some of those families that stayed now have the largest farms in the whole country. They provide food, not just for us, but the entire world. Why is that relevant to what we're talking about today? The reason it's relevant is because every single one of us has to make that exact same choice. We have all been given something by God. Time, talents, resources. We've all been given something by God, and we have to decide what are we going to do with it. What are you going to do with the things that God has given you? Are you going to try and keep them? Or are you going to risk them to see what God can bring out of them? Well, so what we're going to do in our time together today is we're going to look at Jesus' answer. Because uh, Jesus point blank tells us what we do with what we have. So if you got your Bibles, go with me this morning to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is where we're going to kind of spend our time. And we're going to look at a really unique situation that maybe upon first reading is not going to make a lot of sense. But I think as we read it, you're going to see how Jesus would answer the question, do we keep it or do we plant it? How, what do we do with what we have? So if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Uh, it'll be up here on the screen. It's going to be in your Bible. You can follow along either way. John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. So here's what we're going to read. It says in verse 20, Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So, so time out right there. Obviously we need context because what in the world does that mean? So there were a group of Greeks, Gentiles, 
non-Jewish people who had come to Jerusalem for a festival of worship. What festival is that? That's actually the Passover. And it's Jesus' last Passover that he's going to spend on earth. Because even though John chapter 12 is only about halfway through John's gospel, the rest of it is going to focus on the last few days of Jesus' life. It goes really fast to start, and then right around here starts to really slow down. So this is the Passover, a huge Jewish festival that these Greek God-fearing men and women had come to Jerusalem to celebrate. So they come to the festival, and in verse 20... It says, or 21, so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. So here are these Greeks. They find a guy who they know named Philip. Maybe he's Greek. Maybe he at least speaks Greek. He's got a Greek name. And they go up to him and they say, Hey, we want to meet Jesus. We've heard about Jesus. We've heard of his miracles. We've heard of his teaching. We've heard about this guy. And we know he's here in Jerusalem. We would love to meet him. And so look at what happens. Verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 22. says, So Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Which, which, by the way, if you want to look at something fascinating, look at Andrew in your New Testament. Andrew's a disciple who all you see him doing is taking people and introducing them to Jesus. That's why I love Andrew. Andrew wasn't a full-blown evangelist who could preach a 45-minute sermon and see thousands get saved. But he would find one at a time and say, hey, come, I got a guy you need to meet. You need to come meet Jesus. We need more Andrews in church today, right? People who just say, hey, come, see this guy, Jesus. Now, I want you to look at Jesus' response here, right? Because you would think the Jesus that we know, the Jesus we read about in the New Testament would say, oh, yeah, I'm happy to meet these guys. I'd love to meet these guys, right? Because if you really love someone, you're going to do everything they ever ask of you anytime, right? Not exactly. <laughs> look at how Jesus, loving, gracious Jesus, look at what he says to their request. Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now this is kind of a weird response, right? Because here you have these Greek Gentiles who have come and all they want to do is meet Jesus. And yet Jesus' answer to them gives no indication that he ever took time to meet with them, right? All he tells uh, Philip and Andrew is that the hours now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, that's our first indication that something crazy is going on right here. Because up to this point, Jesus has said numerous times, the hour is coming where the Son of Man is going to be glorified. He said that to refer to his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. He said that hour's coming, the hour's close. But now, he says the hour's here. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this is really important because this then becomes Jesus' last public teaching. This is the last time Jesus publicly teaches before his death on the cross. And that's what he says. Look, look at verse 24 again. He says, so a grain of wheat, right? If it falls to the ground and dies, or if it falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. 
right? So that makes sense, kind of, maybe, maybe not. What's Jesus saying here? Why is that the answer to a couple of guys who want to meet him and have lunch? Why does Jesus go out on that tangent? Well, I think to really understand what Jesus is saying, I think we need to understand a little bit more about what's going on in Jerusalem at this time, right? So I told you I'm a nerd. I, I like history. I like Batman. Yes, I'm a nerd. The glasses are not just for, you know, hipster cool points. I need them to see, right? So, so here, here's what I want to do. If you'll indulge me like seven minutes, I want to give you a short lesson on the temple in Jesus' day and how I think that helps us understand why he would answer these people the way that he did. Right? So if you've ever been to the temple, uh, Temple Mount, it's pretty incredible. We're going again as a church in January. Every two years we're going to be going. You need to make plans one day to go with us. So if you've been, you have an idea what I'm fixing to tell you. If not, you may not. So i got something to help you. Here on the screen is a really simplified version of what the temple looked like in Jesus' day. Now, this is super simplified, but it helps you get an idea of what's happening. So, you see how the temple really is kind of a, a series of co-centric rectangles that are more and more exclusive as you get to the center, right? So, you have uh, the big, you know, Beijus area is the court of Gentiles. That's where anybody could go from anywhere on the world. But to get through the next gate, that green area is the court of women. You had to be a Jewish person to get in that gate. Uh, now the women were only allowed to go that far. That's why it's the court of women. So that little blue area it's called the court of Israel. So not only did you have to be Jewish to get in there, but you had to be a Jewish male to get in there, right? And so the next area is that pink area. It's called the priest court. So you wasn't good enough just to be Jewish. wasn't good enough just to be male. You had to be a Jewish male from the tribe of Levi. You had to be a priest of Israel to get that far. And then that little you know, yellowish building in the middle, that's actually the temple. That, that's the temple itself. And, and only a few people were able to go in there. And even that building was actually cut in half. There was a huge curtain, a huge veil that separated the front half from the back half. And in the back half, in the middle of the temple, was this room that was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've seen Indiana Jones, you got an idea what the Ark of the Covenant is, but maybe not completely. Because the Ark of the Covenant wasn't a treasure box for Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was God's throne as king of a nation seated in the middle of the capital. That room was the room where the tangible presence of God was in his country. And you know who could get in there? One guy, one time a year. The high priest, the chief guy, he could go in, that in the Holy of Holies once a year and approach God's presence and approach God's throne. And if he went in and had any unconfessed sin in his life, he would drop dead. Right? You know, you know what they would do just to make sure? Because, you know, human nature is never to trust what somebody tells you. They tied a rope around his ankle just in case they needed to pull him out. If you don't believe me, go look it up. It's pretty incredible. So that's the temple in Jesus' day. And here's the thing. It looks like that in our minds. You got an idea, right? This is what it looks like. 
So this is what that temple then looks like. It's not like a few little lines. They didn't have this thing roped off with some stanchions. This wasn't like police tape up that was keeping everybody out. This was a massive structure with massive gates and walls. Here's another view that kind of gives you a picture of what that actually looked like. So what does that have to do with the story we just read? So they're there at Passover, and they're celebrating Passover. Now here's a question. Where would the Greeks be, the Gentiles, in this picture? The big outside court, right? The court of Gentiles. Now, assuming they were looking for Jesus and couldn't find him, if Jesus was in the temple, where would he be? He's a Jewish male. He would be past that big white gate, in front of that big white building in the court of Israel. And so does it make sense why these Greeks had to run down a guy named Philip and said, hey, we want to see Jesus, and we can't get in. We're not Jewish. We can't get in. So would you have Jesus come out to meet us? And so Philip and Andrew go to Jesus, and they begin to talk, and, and Jesus said, now the hour's come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Why is it now that that thought triggers in his mind? Now I'm not saying that they did anything that forced Jesus' hand. I'm also not a believer in coincidence. So this didn't just happen. Right? It just so happens. Never just happens. I think what happened here, we understand better when we look back at Jesus' words in verse 24. Look at those words in verse 24 again. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. You think Jesus was talking about a grain of wheat? What was he talking about? He was talking about himself, right? Because I think this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, I could go have coffee with these guys. We could go sit down at Dunkin' Donuts and catch up and maybe we'll even become best friends. But if I just go meet them, they can see me, but only them. See, if I'm here, I'm just going to meet people one-on-one -on -one and that's it. But if I die, I'm going to tear down the gates that kept them out in the first place. See, this is huge because what Jesus is saying is that it is not right for your access to God to be determined by who you are and where you were born. Jesus died so that those co-centric rectangles of the temple could be done away with for all. And now you don't have to come to a guy thousands of miles away in Jerusalem and say, hey, can we have lunch? Now the very Spirit of God can live in you. You don't have to go see Jesus. You are now a child of God. Think about that. That's incredible. And, and this isn't Jesus just kind of making some off-the-wall statement that he backs down from later. Jesus doubles down on this comment just a few chapters away from here. In John 14, Jesus says, look guys, I'm going away. I'm going to die and I'm going away, but it's for your good that I go away because there's coming one after me. Who's that that comes after him? It's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God himself now comes. Jesus says, it's good for you that I go away because now you're going to do greater things than I. Hold on, Jesus. Greater things than you? 
like, have you guys met me yet? I don't think that's accurate, right? Because if you don't know me very well, I'm going to let you down at some point, and it's probably going to be for me trying to do something to make you laugh, and you're just going to look and shake your head. But yet Jesus looks at us. He looks at each one of us and says, you're going to do greater things than I. Why? Because now the ministry of Jesus is not confined to one man in one location at one time, but now the church, his bride, has been filled with his spirit and is not a group of 12 men in a Middle Eastern country, but now it exists of men, women, and children from every tribe and every tongue and every nation on earth. Greater things. See, Jesus understood that we can try to keep what we have or we can lay down our lives as a sacrifice and see more. See, Jesus could have been content to come and be a wandering rabbi who taught at the temple, but he knew that God's plan, God's purpose for him as the one and only unique Son of God, was not to be a teacher, but to be a Savior. And he willingly laid down his life so that everyone who would now call on his name might be saved. Jesus said, I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm going to bear much fruit. So what are you going to do with what God's given you? What are you going to do with what God's given you? Because we all face the choice. Are we going to use that pitcher of water to pour ourselves a glass? Are we going to use that pitcher of water to prime that pump? What are we going to do? Are we going to keep the seed that we have? Or are we going to choose to plant it and see if God will bring a harvest? See, here's the question we all got to ask. Will we preserve or will we plant? That's the choice you have to make. What are you going to do with what God's given you? Are you going to preserve it? Are you going to take your time and hold it with a clenched fist and say, Chip, I've just got to learn how to start saying no to people. Why? My theory is let's wind up in heaven worn out and exhausted and see what God will do with it. Right? Are you going to keep it? Or are you going to use it? What about, what about your, your talents? God has given you a gift. Not just a talent you were born with, but a spiritual gift. When you were born again, filled with the Spirit of God, you were given a gift. Are you using it for His kingdom? Or are you holding on to it, making sure you just don't lose it? What about this? Can I say this? I know we don't talk about money at the orchard very often, but what about money? Right? Because I know that's something I like to hold on to really tight. I hyperventilate when we go Christmas shopping. It's not a fun experience at the Parker House. But here's the thing. Do you think that you were given what you were given so that you could hold on to it or so that you could invest it and let God bring much fruit from it? I'm not saying be stupid with your money, but I can think of no better investment than the local church because only there do you see eternal rewards. So what are you going to do with what you've been given? You got a choice. You're going you're gonna to hold on to it? You're going to keep it? Or are you willing to lay it down? Because here's what I'm going to tell you. You've got to let go of what you have if you want to see God bring more. Now, you need to be very careful with what I just said. Because what I'm not telling you to do is, God said if I let go of my wife, he'll give me a better one. That's not what I'm saying. Because listen to me. 
you can use this in a very selfish and self-centered way that is not honoring to God. Or when you understand letting go, it's not moving on, it's laying it down as a sacrifice. Listen to me. The grass is greener, is a lie from hell. Sacrifice of self is a principle of the kingdom. And there's a big difference between the two. So what are you going to do with what you've been given? Because honestly, that's a question that we have to wrestle with as a church. Isn't it? Because here we are, almost 13 years in, and God has blessed us tremendously. And the older we get and the bigger we grow, it can be really easy to hold on to what we have and say, we, don't, we want to keep it just like this. We don't want anything to change. But the problem is, when we do that, all we get is what we've got. But what we've decided as a church is to be willing to risk all that we have and all that we are to see more people come to faith in Jesus. Can I tell you, we don't say that lightly because I know probably the reason that you're here today is because you like what we do. I like the music. I like to hear Eddie preach. I like what Cindy does with the kids. I like the donuts. I like what we do at the orchard. But I don't want to bust your bubble. Yet the truth is, if you're here because of what we do, you won't be here very long. Because what we do is going to change. Because we're going to continue to lay it down and see what God wants to do next. We're going to let that grain of wheat fall to the ground and die and ask God to bring more fruit. See, you're here because of what we do. But if you want to stay, you need to understand why we do it. The reason why we do what we do is because we have a burning desire to see people far from God come to new life in Christ. And so we are willing to be open-handed with everything and everybody we have asking him to bring more fruit. And that is the dumbest church growth strategy ever. Except he's promised to be with us. Except that he's promised that when a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. So are we going to hold on to what we have? Are we willing to lose what we have? We're willing every time. God's called us not to keep, but to sacrifice. Not to preserve, but to plant. And we're going to plant it, and we're going to ask God, take it and do it again. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, God, thanks for the time to, to spend as a church this morning, God, to look at your word, to hear from you. And God, I thank you for a principle that's just as powerful now as it was when you taught it thousands of years ago. And so, God, I know that the inclinations of our heart are to hold tight and grasp firm what it is that we have and what we've been given. God, we don't want to lose it. We don't want it to change. But God, I pray that you would open our hands and open our hearts, that we would trust you and you would bless our efforts. So God, I pray now that you would do a work in our heart to help us to let go of what we have and lay down our very lives for your kingdom. God, we've seen you do some great things. 
And we're going to ask that you do it again. In Jesus' name, amen.